Chapter 13, Part 2 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bethany McGill. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 13, Part 2. You may conceive how tardily the hours passed till the appointed time came, when, stealing to the parlor, I found Marlowe expecting me. He folded me to his heart, and his tears mingled with mine as I related my melancholy tale. "'You are now, my Fanny,' he cried, "'entirely mine. Deprived of the protection of your tender parents, I shall endeavor to fulfill the sacred trust they reposed in my honor, by securing mine to you, as far as lies in my power.' "'I was not mistaken,' continued he, "'in the idea I had formed of the treatment I should receive by flinty-hearted relations on leaving you. Had I not promised to drop all correspondence with you, I must have relinquished all hopes of their favor. Bitter indeed, cried he, while a tear started in his eye, is the bread of dependence. Ill could my soul submit to the indignities I received, but I consoled myself throughout them by the idea of future happiness with my Fanny. Had I known her situation, which indeed it was impossible I should, as my uncle's spy attended me wherever I went, no dictate of prudence would have prevented my flying to her aid. Thank heaven, then, you are ignorant of it, said I. My aunt, he proceeded showed me your work, lavishing the highest encomiums on it. I glanced my eye carelessly upon it, but, in a moment, how was that careless eye attracted by the well-known objects presented to it? This, I said to my heart, can only be Fanny's work. I tried to discover from my aunt whether my conjectures were wrong, but without success. When I retired to dress, I asked my servant if there had been any addition to the family during my absence. He said a young woman was hired to do fine works, but she never appeared among the servants. Marlowe proceeded to say, he could not bear I should longer continue in servitude, and that without delay he was resolved to unite his fate to mine. I opposed this resolution a little, but soon, too self-interested, I fear, acquiesced in it. It was agreed I should inform his aunt my health would no longer permit my continuing in her family, and that I should retire to a village six miles off, where Marlowe undertook to bring a young clergyman, a particular friend of his, to perform the ceremony. Our plan, as settled, was carried into execution, and I became the wife of Marlowe. I was now, you will suppose, elevated to the pinnacle of happiness. I was so, indeed, but my own folly precipitated me from it. The secrecy I was compelled to observe mortified me exceedingly, as I panted to emerge from the invidious cloud which had so long concealed my beauty and accomplishments from a world that I was confident, if seen, would pay them the homage they merited. The people with whom I lodged had been obliged by Marlowe, and therefore, from interest and gratitude, obeyed the injunction he gave them of keeping my residence at their house a secret. They believed, or affected to believe, I was an orphan committed to his care, whom his uncle would be displeased to know he had taken under his protection. Three or four times a week I received stolen visits from Marlowe, when, one day, after a month had elapsed in this manner, standing at the parlor window, I saw Mrs. Wilson walking down the village. I started back, but too late to escape her observation. She immediately bolted into the room with all the eagerness of curiosity. I bore her first interrogations tolerably well, but when she upbraided me for leaving the excellent service she had procured for me, for duplicity in saying I was going to another, and for my indiscretion in respect to Marlowe, I lost all command of my temper, and, remembering the inhumanity with which she had forced me into servitude, I resolved to mortify her completely by assuming all the airs I had heretofore so ridiculously aspired to. Lolling in my chair with an air of the most careless indifference, I bid her no longer petrify me with her discourse. This raised all the violence of rage, and she plainly told me, from my conduct with Marlowe, I was unworthy her notice. Therefore, cried I, forgetting every dictate of prudence, 
His wife will neither desire nor receive it in future. His wife, she repeated with a look of scorn and incredulity. I produced the certificate of my marriage, thus, from an impulse of vanity and resentment, putting myself in the power of a woman, a stranger to every liberal feeling, and whose mind was inflamed with envy towards me. The hint I forced myself at parting to give her, to keep the affair secret, only determined her more strongly to reveal it. The day after her visit, Marlowe entered my apartment. Pale, agitated, and breathless, he sunk into a chair. A pang, like conscious guilt, smote my heart, and I trembled as I approached him. He repulsed me when I attempted to touch his hand. Cruel, inconsiderate woman, he said, to what dreadful lengths has your vanity hurried you? It has drawn destruction upon your own head as well as mine. Shame and remorse tied my tongue. Had I spoken indeed, I could not have indicated myself, and I turned aside and wept. Marlowe, mild, tender, and adoring, could not long retain resentment. He started from his chair and clasped me to his bosom. Oh, Fanny, he cried, though you have ruined me, you are still dear as ever to me. This tenderness affected me even more than reproaches, and tears and sighs declared my penitence. His expectations relative to his uncle were finally destroyed, on being informed of our marriage, which Mrs. Wilson lost no time in telling him. He burned his will, and immediately made another in favor of a distant relation. On hearing this intelligence, I was almost distracted. I flung myself at my husband's feet, implored his pardon, yet declared I could never forgive myself. He grew more composed upon the increase of my agitation, as if purposely to soothe my spirits, assuring me that, though his uncle's favor was lost, he had other friends on whom he greatly depended. We set off for London, and found his dependence was not ill-placed, for, soon after his arrival, he obtained a place of considerable emolument in one of the public offices. My husband delighted in gratifying me, though I was often both extravagant and whimsical, and almost ever on the wing for admiration and amusement. I was reckoned a pretty woman, and received with rapture the nonsense and adulation addressed to me. I became acquainted with a young widow, who concealed a depraved heart under a specious appearance of innocence and virtue, and by aiding the vices of others, procured the means of gratifying her own. Yet so secret were all her transactions that calumny had not yet attacked her, and her house was the rendezvous of the most fashionable people. My husband, who did not dislike her manner, encouraged our intimacy, and at her parties I was noticed by a young nobleman, then at the head of the torn. My husband, who did not dislike her manner, encouraged our intimacy, and at her parties I was noticed by a young nobleman, then at the head of the tongue. He declared I was one of the most charming objects he had ever beheld, and, for such a declaration, I thought him the most polite I had ever known. As Lord T. condescended to wear my chains, I must certainly, I thought, become quite the rage. My transports, however, were a little checked by the grave remonstrances of my husband, who assured me Lord T. was a famous, or rather an infamous, libertine, and that, if I did not avoid his lordship's particular attentions, he must insist on my relinquishing the widow's society. This I thought cruel, but I saw him resolute and promised to act as he desired, a promise I never adhered to except when he was present. I was now in a situation to promise an increase of family, and Marlowe wished me to nurse the child. The tenderness of my heart seconding his wish, I resolved on obeying it, but when the widow heard my intention, she laughed at it, and said it was absolutely ridiculous for the sake of a squalling brat to give up all the pleasures of life. Besides, it would be much better taken care of in some of the villages about London. I denied this. Still, however, she dwelt on the sacrifices I must make, the amusements I must give up, and at last completely conquered my resolution. I pretended to Marlow my health was too delicate to allow me to bear such a fatigue, and he immediately sacrificed his own inclinations to mine. I have often wondered at the kind of infatuation with which he complied with all my desires. 
My little girl, almost as soon as born, was sent for me. My little girl, almost as soon as born, was sent for me. But, on being able to go out again, I received a considerable shock. From hearing my noble admirer was gone to the continent, owing to a trifling derangement in his affairs. The vain pursuits of pleasure and dissipation were still continued. Three years passed in this manner, during which I had a son, and my little girl was brought home. I have often since felt astonished at the cold indifference with which I regarded my Marlowe and our lovely babe, on whom he doted with all the enthusiasm of tenderness. Alas, vanity had then absorbed my heart, and deadened every feeling of nature and sensibility. It is the parent of self-love and apathy, and degrades those who harbor it below humanity. Lord T. now returned from the continent. He swore my idea had never been absent from his mind, and that I was more charming than ever, while I thought him, if possible, more polite and engaging. Again, my husband remonstrated. Sometimes I seemed to regard these remonstrances, sometimes protested I would not submit to such unnecessary control. I knew, indeed, that my intentions were innocent and I believed I might safely indulge my fantasy without endangering either my reputation or peace. About this time, Marlowe received a summons to attend a dying friend four miles from London. Our little girl was then in a slight fever, which had alarmed her father, and confined me most unwillingly, I must confess, to the house. Marlowe, on the point of departing, pressed me to his breast. "'My heart, my beloved Fanny,' said he, "'feels unusually heavy. I trust the feeling is no presentiment of approaching ill.' I trust the feeling is no presentiment of approaching ill. Oh, my Fanny, on you and my babe, I rest for happiness. Take care of our little cherub, and above all, his meek eye countering mine, take care of yourself, that with my accustomed rapture I may on my return receive you to my arms. There was something so solemn and so tender in this address that my heart melted, and my tears mingled with those which trickled down his pale cheeks. For two days I attended my child assiduously, when the widow made her appearance. She assured me I should injure myself by such close confinement, and that my cheeks were already faded by it. She mentioned a delightful masquerade which was to be given that night, and for which Lord T. had presented her with tickets for me and herself. But she declared, except I would accompany her, she would not go. I had often wished to go to a masquerade. I now, however, declined this opportunity of gratifying my inclination, but so faintly as to prompt a renewal of her solicitations, to which I at last yielded and, committing my babe to the care of a servant, set off with the widow to a warehouse to choose dresses. Lord T. dined with us, and we were all in the highest spirits imaginable. About twelve we went in his chariot to the haymarket, and I was absolutely intoxicated with his flattery and the dazzling objects around me. At five we quitted the scene of gaiety. The widow took a chair. I would have followed her example, but my lord absolutely lifted me into his chariot, and there began talking in a strain which provoked my contempt and excited my apprehensions. I expressed my displeasure in tears, which checked his boldness, and convinced him he had some difficulties yet to overcome ere he completed his designs. He made his apologies with so much humility that I was soon appeased and prevailed on to accept them. We arrived at the widow's house in as much harmony as we left it. The flags were wet, and Lord T. insisted on carrying me into the house. At the door I observed a man muffled up, but as no one noticed him, I thought no more about it. We sat down to supper in high spirits, and chatted for a considerable time about our past amusements. His lordship said, After a little sleep, we should recruit ourselves by a pleasant jaunt to Richmond, where he had a charming villa. We agreed to his proposal, and retired to rest. About noon we arose, and while I was dressing myself for the projected excursion, a letter was brought in to me. Good lord, Halcott, exclaimed I, turning to the widow, if Marlowe is returned, what will become of me? Oh, read, my dear creature, cried she impatiently, and then we can think of excuses. I have the letter here, continued Mrs. Marlowe, laying her hand to her breast, and drawing it forth after a short pause. 
I laid it to my heart to guard it against future folly. The letter. The presages of my heart were but too true. We parted never to meet again. Oh, Fanny, beloved of my soul, how are you lost to yourself and Marlowe? The independence, splendor, riches, which I gave up for your sake, were mean sacrifices in my estimation to the felicity I fondly expected to have enjoyed with you through life. Your beauty charmed my mind, but it was your simplicity captivated my heart. I took, as I thought, the perfect child of innocence and sincerity to my bosom, resolved from duty as well as from inclination to shelter you in that bosom, to the utmost of my power, from every adverse storm. Whenever you were indisposed, what agonies did I endure? Yet what I then dreaded could I have possibly foreseen, which could have been comparative happiness to my present misery. For, oh, my Fanny, far preferable would it have been to beheld you in the arms of death than infamy. I returned immediately after witnessing the last pangs of my friend, oppressed with the awful scene of death, yet cheering my spirits by an anticipation of the consolation I should receive from my Fanny's sympathy. Good God, what was my horror when I found my little babe, instead of being restored to health by mother's care, nearly expiring through her neglect. The angel lay gasping on her bed, deserted by the mercenary wretch to whose care she was consigned. I inquired, and the fatal truth rushed upon my soul. Yet, when the first tumult of passion had subsided, I felt that, without yet stronger proofs, I could not abandon you. Alas, too soon did I receive those proofs. I traced you, Fanny, through your giddy round, till I saw you born in the arms of the vile Lord T, into the house of his vile paramour. You will wonder, perhaps, I did not tear you from his grasp. Could such a procedure have restored you to me, with all your unsullied innocence? I should not have hesitated. But that was impossible, and my eyes then gazed upon Fanny for the last time. I returned to my motherless babe, and I am not ashamed to say, I wept over it with all the agonies of a fond and betrayed heart. Ere I bid an irrevocable adieu, I would, if possible, endeavor to convince you that conscience cannot always be stifled, that illicit love is constantly attended by remorse and disappointment. For, when familiarity or disease has diminished the charms which excited it, the frail fetters of admiration are broken by him who looks only to an exterior for delight. If, indeed, your conscience should not be awakened till this hour of desertion comes, when it does arrive, you may, perhaps, think of Marlowe. Yes, Fanny, when your cheeks are faded by care, when your wit is enfeebled by despondency, you may think of him whose tenderness would have outlived both time and change, and supported you, without abatement, through every stage of life. To stop short in the career of vice is, they say, the noblest effort of virtue. May such an effort be yours, and may you yet give joy to the angels of heaven, who, we are taught to believe, rejoice over them that truly repent. That want should strew no thorns in the path of penitence. All that I can take for my babe I have assigned to you. Oh, my dear culprit, remember the precepts of your early youth, of those who, sleeping in the dust, are spared the bitter tear of anguish, such as I now shed, and, ere too late, expiate your errors. In the solitude to which I am hastening, I shall continually pray for you. But when my child raises its spotless hands to heaven, it shall implore its mercy for erring mortals. Yet think not it shall ever hear your story. Oh, never shall the blush of shame for the frailties of one so dear tinge its ingenuous countenance. May the sincerity of your repentance restore that peace and brightness to your life, which at present I think you must have forfeited, and support you with fortitude through its closing period. As a friend, once dear, you will ever exist in the memory of Marlowe. As I concluded the letter, my spirits, which had been gradually receding, entirely forsook me, and I fell senseless on the floor. Mrs. Halcott and Lord T. took his opportunity for gratifying their curiosity by perusing the letter, and when I recovered, I found myself supported between them. "'You see, my dear angel,' cried Lord T., 
Your cruel husband has entirely abandoned you. But grieve not, for in my arms you shall find a kinder asylum than he ever afforded you. True, said Mrs. Halcott, for my part I think she has reason to rejoice at his desertion. I shall not attempt to repeat all I had said to them in the height of my distraction. Suffice it to say, I reproach them both as the authors of my shame and misery. And, while I spurned Lord T. indignantly from my feet, accused Mrs. Halcott of possessing neither delicacy nor feeling. Alas, accusation or reproach could not lighten the weight on my heart. I felt a dreadful consciousness of having occasioned my own misery. I seemed as if awaking from a disordered dream, which had confused my senses, and the more clearly my perception of what was right returned, the more bitterly I lamented my deviation from it. To be reinstated in the esteem and affection of my husband was all the felicity I could desire to possess. Full of the idea of being able to effect a reconciliation, I started up, but, ere I reached the door, sunk into an agony of tears, recollecting that ere this he was probably far distant from me. My base companions tried to assuage my grief, and make me in reality the wretch poor Marla supposed me to be. I heard them in silent contempt, unable to move, till a servant informed me a gentleman below stairs desired to see me. The idea of a relenting husband instantly occurred, and I flew down, but how great was my disappointment only to see a particular friend of his. Our meaning was painful in the extreme. I asked him if he knew anything of Marlowe, and he solemnly assured me he did not. When my confusion and distress had a little subsided, he informed me that in the morning he had received a letter from him, with an account of our separation, and the fatal cause of it. The letter contained a deed of settlement on me of a small paternal estate, and a bill of fifty pounds, which Marlowe requested his friend to present himself to me. He also added my clothes were sent to his house, as our lodgings had been discharged. I did not find it difficult to convince this gentleman of my innocence, and, putting myself under his protection, was immediately conveyed to lodgings in a retired part of the town. Here he consoled me with assurances of using every effort to discover the residence of my husband. All, alas, proved unsuccessful, and my health gradually declined. As time wore away, my hope yet left still undiminished my desire of seeing him. Change of air was at least deemed requisite to preserve my existence, and I went to Bristol. I had the good fortune to lodge in the house with an elderly Irish lady, whose sweet and benevolent manner soon gained my warmest esteem, and tempted me to divulge my melancholy tale, for so certain of obtaining pity. She had also suffered severely from the pressure of sorrow, but hers, as it proceeded not from imprudence, but the common vicissitudes of life, was born without that degree of anguish mine occasioned. As the period approached for her return to her native country, I felt the deepest regret at the prospect of our separation, but she, however, removed by asking me to reside entirely with her. Eight years had elapsed since the loss of my husband, and no latent hope of his return remained in my heart sufficiently strong to tempt me to forego the advantages of such society. Ere I departed, however, I wrote to several of his friends, informing them of the step I intended taking, and if any tidings of Marlowe occurred, where I was to be found. Five years I passed with my valuable friend in retirement, and had the pleasure of thinking I contributed to the ease of her last moments. This cottage, with a few acres adjoining it, and four hundred pounds, was all her wealth, and to me she bequeathed it, having no relations whose wants gave them any claim upon her. The events I have just related will, I hope, strengthen the moral so many wish to impress upon the minds of youth, namely, that, without a strict adherence to propriety, there can be no permanent pleasure, and that it is the actions of early life must give to old age either happiness and comfort, or sorrow and remorse. Had I attended to the admonitions of wisdom and experience, I should have checked my wanderings from prudence, and preserved my happiness from being sacrificed at the shrine of vanity. Then, instead of being a solitary in the world, 
I might have had my little fireside enlivened by the partner of my heart, and, perhaps, my children's children sporting around. But suffering is the proper tax we pay for folly. The frailty of human nature, the prevalence of example, the allurements of the world, are mentioned by many as extenuations for misconduct. Though virtue, say they, is willing, she is often too weak to resist the wishes they excite. Mistake an idea, and blessed is that virtue which, opposing, ends them. With every temptation we have the means of escape, and woe be to us if we neglect those means, or hesitate to disentangle ourselves from the snare which vice or folly may have spread around us. Sorrow and disappointment are incident to mortality, and when not occasioned by any conscious imprudence, should be considered as temporary trials from heaven to improve and correct us, and therefore cheerfully be borne. A sigh stole from Oscar as she spoke, and a tear trickled down the soft cheek of Adela. I have, continued Mrs. Marlowe, given you, like an old woman, a tedious tale, but that tediousness, with every other imperfection I have acknowledged, I rest upon your friendship and candor to excuse. End of chapter 13